Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're going to be starting in uh, Hebrews chapter 6. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this time together that we can study and study a word uh, that you've given us so freely to understand the precepts that uh, you've laid out for us. And, and again, we thank, thank you for giving us Mark to, to be a, a guide and a teacher and all the, the work that he does in preparing these lessons. And uh, bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome, Mark. Amen. Well, thank you very much. We are uh, moving along here, looking at the letter to Hebrews, and let's begin this evening by reading the first eight verses of chapter six, please. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings, the laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Great. Thank you very much. Now, hopefully most of you have listened to the earlier sessions that we have available, but to pick up the context here, we have a writer who is a Judean believer, probably not the Apostle Paul, but probably someone who had worked under the Apostle Paul or with the Apostle Paul. And this person is writing to a group of Judean believers who are are very likely to be members of a synagogue community somewhere outside of Palestine in the Roman world. And uh, we've mentioned this numerous times before that the scriptures that the New Testament authors refer to, of course, are 
what we call the Old Testament scriptures. These were all hand-copied scrolls, and they were a set of them for the entire Old Testament would be priceless at the time of this writing, uh, approximately 67 or 68 A.D. And so we see a lot of evidence that the uh, Christian believers stayed as part of the synagogue as long as they could possibly uh, get by with it so that they would have access uh, to the scriptures. And he is writing this message because persecution is coming, not thousands of years down the road, but within months or a year, but not very far away. And they've had some persecution. They've been tormented a little bit. They may have had uh, property violated. They may have been called bad names. But what's coming is real persecution uh, to the point of physical death. And as members of a synagogue community, which encompassed all of the different factions, schisms, and sects of the Judean national religion, these people could just kind of lay back, sink back down into the seats, and quit confessing Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah, and probably avoid the whole nasty mess that's about to come down on their head. So this entire letter is written in that context of of saying, you know, that would be so easy to do, but you don't want to do it. And the author is writing a very detailed literary argument comparing the two ages of Judean thought, which are also, by the way, the only two ages known in modern Jewish thought, the age that was at the time of this writing and the age that was about to come that was read there at the end of verse 5. And there are only these two ages, and we are seeing throughout this letter that the old age is about to go away, and the new age has dawned, but it it hasn't really been consummated as long as the old age lingers on. But there's a, a sense of imminence throughout this letter that is severely watered down in nearly all of our English translations because the translators could not understand or accept the imminence uh, in the original language, so they just changed it, which is, I guess, a convenient way to get around difficult uh, passages. But our author is picking up his argument. He's, he's comparing the old age that's going out to the new age that's coming in, and he has a list here that pertains to the preliminary part of the gospel or Christ's message, literally the word of the beginning of Christ. And he's urging the the readers to move beyond these preliminary things here. They are spiritually immature. They are they are concerned about their physical well being more than their eternal relationship as part of God's family in the everlasting age of Messiah. 
So they're they're kind of caught up in uh, real basic ideas, and he's saying we've got to move on from this. Now he has this list, six items that uh, fall into uh, three pairs. Uh, repentance from dead works, which goes closely with faith in God. Instruction about ablutions, which goes with laying on of hands. And resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Interestingly, we see that these are not unique things to belief in Christ, but these were actually things that had been stirring up in the Judean nation because they all knew from the writings of Daniel that the age of Messiah was at hand. The, the timelines are so clear, and and the the signs and the age is described so well in Daniel that they all knew that it was time for Messiah uh, to come. And we find lots of evidence of that in the gospel accounts describing the birth of Jesus and the wise men from the east and Herod the Great knowing uh, that it was time for the Messiah and so on and so forth. Um, but there was a lot of unrest because the entire Judean nation had been plagued with utterly corrupt leadership for hundreds of years before this letter was written. And one group, the Essenes, completely separated themselves from the Judean leadership and refused to acknowledge them as having any legitimacy uh, whatsoever. We find stories in Josephus of people claiming to be Messiah, armies going out in the wilderness to fight against Rome and against the Judean leadership. There's just a lot of unrest. But these ideas here are six items that I mentioned. Repentance, this is the message that John the Immerser uh, had for the Judean people. They had to repent. The, the spirit of prophecy returned to Judea through John after almost 500 years of silence. And the people were excited that there was once again a prophet in Israel. And they flocked in droves down to hear John. And John told them to repent. And then he immersed them in the Jordan River. Um, they had to put their faith in God. We know that John was the uh, revived uh, personage of Elijah uh, in God's etern in eternal plan. And uh, Elijah would come to turn the hearts of the people back to the fathers and the fathers to the people. So they, they, had, to, they had to turn away from their present corrupt leadership and go back to the faith of Abraham, to the faith of the patriarchs. Uh, and so repentance from dead works ties in there with faith in God, the, the, the work of John. And, but John was not in the kingdom of God. He was not a disciple of Christ. He was a prophet to Israel and definitely of the old age as Christ himself uh, spoke about on, on a couple of occasions. So uh, 
these first two definitely are are not uh, unique to the believers in Christ, but would be common amongst the, the people of Judea who were discontent with the corrupt state of affairs in their nation. The Essenes uh, formed their own group off to the side. They they had uh, baptistries all over their communities, and they had to uh, go down and immerse themselves in in water, and they talk a lot about laying on of hands and so on. So th- these things were common in the Judean nation amongst those who were not following the leadership hook, line, and sinker. Um, and then resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Quite clearly, the Judeans believed that the resurrection from the dead would occur when Messiah came, and that the judgment would also occur when Messiah came. And we looked a lot at that in the book of Acts, uh, in the chapters that concern the trials of Paul toward the end of the book of Acts, and those are probably still available for download that would go into this subject. But the promises made to Israel through the prophets uh, of the resurrection were at the same time as the judgment, and Paul announced boldly that the the time for both was at hand at that time. And this was something, again, that groups of the Judeans were eagerly awaiting because, again, the timelines of Daniel were so specific. So this would be consistent. They were resting in these ideas, which would be along the lines of reforming the physical Judean state, and they had lost sight of the far greater truth that these were just precursors to a far greater work of God, which was to create a perfect spiritual temple and a a spiritual nation, a nation of believers by faith rather than a nation based on physical reproduction and genealogies. And and most of our listeners would be familiar with numerous passages in Paul's letters that deal with those topics. All right, any uh any comments or thoughts here while I make sure I didn't forget anything important. All right. Mark, could you- Mark, yeah. Mark, could you expand a little bit more on the uh, repentance from dead works and the application of that? Yeah, most conservative Christian scholars don't believe that that is talking about works of the law per se. Although you know we have many other passages that do talk about works of the law, but this was the message of John who came into the wilderness, the people came out to see him. They they had to repent. The, remember, the, the prophecy of Malachi closes that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is the judgment on Israel, that 
Elijah must come first, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. So uh, John urged them to repent. They had to be more like Abraham, and they had to be less like their current leaders who were uh, doing all kinds of wicked things, things that needed to be repented of. The whole nation needed to repent or change direction is what that means. They needed to change direction because they were going the wrong way. There's uh, numerous lists of these things uh, that are in Paul's letters and in other letters that are not considered part of the Bible. Uh, Murders, adulteries, lusts, fornications, thefts, idolatries, magic, arts, sorceries. Uh, I think y'all were talking about this before our show began. Robberies, false depositions, hypocrisies, a double heart, fraud, arrogance, malice, obstinacy, covetousness, filthy language, envy, audacity, haughtiness, and boastfulness. So that's that's what um, the scholars that I follow think is in mind with this uh, idea of repentance from dead works. The apostasy of the nation was pretty much irremediable at this point in time, 67, 68 A.D. They'd been given uh, chance after chance uh, to to reform and to repent, but now it's really too late. So the idea that they can quit confessing Christ, that they can sit back and be good members of the synagogue and just go to work trying to reform the Judean nation is no longer valid. And this is why our writer is urging them to leave those thoughts completely behind. Um, he's telling them that they can't, if they, if they turn away from the spiritual truths that have been revealed to them through the gospel of Christ, there is no hope for them. They will be utterly destroyed along with the whole corrupt nation. They have received the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, with their Christian baptism. And they have tasted the good things of God, which may be, I mean, referring to the communion or Lord's Supper uh, in a sense which, of course, signifies the uh, spiritual nourishment that we receive constantly from Christ as part of Christ, um, being his body, being saved by his blood, as as those things uh, signify. It may be in mind there in verse 5. But they have been part of all of these good things of the gospel, but now... If they should fall away, it is going to be impossible to renew themselves again because they will be effectually crucifying the Son of God all over again. And this coming age, as it's translated in the English, is... Eon Melo, which is the age that is 
upon us it is literally what it means. It's imminent. Uh, it, it, it's not coming sometime in the next 5,000 years. It means at hand. It means it is here. That It means that we are on the brink of this new age. And again, the, the translators uh, could not cope with this, so they have just changed it. And they've even watered down the definition of mellow in most of the lexicons based on the Bible, based on their mistranslation. But Thayer has a good definition in his, the simple definition at the very point of acting, ready, about to happen. And Thayer adds, this is used generally of something that is surely about to happen. So that that's the descriptor of the age that is uh, upon them there at the end of verse 5. And then yet another sign of imminence is at the at the end of verse 8 that which is bearing uh, thorns and thistles is deemed unfit and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned and again this is the great day of the lord from the book of malachi this is the message of john the baptist when he came uh, preaching out in the uh, wilderness, I mean, he said to the Pharisees, who warned you, brood of vipers, to flee from the wrath that is about to come. Behold, the root is already laid bare, and there's already a fire prepared for all the you know, unfruitful branches of the national tree of Israel. It's basically talking about to be uh, thrown into the fire. So, I mean, this is not something bizarre. This is not something new. This is the message of nearly all the prophets to Israel that at their end they would do something so bad, so horrible, that there would be no remedy even though God would give them chance after chance after chance to repent. Our writer is now saying that uh, that, that final chance is gone and the, the, the new age is about to dawn, which means the old age is going to end with this intense uh, burning of physical uh, Israel uh, right here in verse 8. And again, I, I think uh, a lot of people who believe all this is still in the future have a difficult time. Uh, trying to synchronize and explain all of this kind of thing, but it, it's it, it's so consistent with what we've seen in the uh, in the other letters, and it it fits uh, with everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Gospels, everything in Acts, everything in Paul's letters, the powers and mighty works that they, these people had witnessed were signs of the end of the age and of the breaking in of the new age. We saw that again in the uh, book, book of Acts. Uh, in Matthew 12, 28, 
Jesus said, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And, of course, the kingdom of God is synonymous with the age of Messiah. Another question, Mark? Yeah. You know, this this passage, um, especially for people who are not not Calvinists, uh, tend to point out, well, see, yeah, you can lose your salvation if you you've you tasted the goodness you've uh, you've been um, of the that you've been uh, you tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. So obviously, these people have a relationship with God and then fallen away. So this is a, a passage that's kind of used to go against Calvinism. But what I hear you saying, it's, it's, that's really not part of the, the conversation at all. Well, I mean, that would certainly be debatable. But when you really apply these things in context, particularly the Roman letter, which is the uh, battleground between the Arminians and the Calvinists, they're, all, they're both totally out of context of the letter. And... And here also, again, I think they're out of context. As we went through the book of Acts systematically, we saw that God's heart was always for Israel. And I have to explain this before Chuck gets apoplexy. But the the prophets, Isaiah, it's full of things like Israel is the apple of my eye. And God's eternal purpose was to make Israel what she was supposed to be, which was a people for God's own possession, a holy priesthood, the living stones of a new temple. But we saw the contrast between old physical Israel, which was spiritually dead. God did not dwell in her presence anymore. And they were more and more corrupt. And then finally God came to them and they murdered him. And so the prophets and our writer here is full of the idea that God is going to transform Israel with some mighty work from something flawed and full of death and blood and bones into something beautiful and perfect and eternal. But that this act of deliverance is going to occur at the same time as a horrible, horrible judgment. And so Israel, we, we say it's all about the church now. You know, I, and I used to hold up the sign, the church is Israel now. But church is not really a proper name. Uh, it's just a bad translation of the word assembly. Uh, and God's assembly, which he had always purposed to do, is Israel. It means they rule with God. But when I say this was God's eternal purpose to perfect Israel and and make Israel part of him, part of his family, and his dwelling place forever, that has nothing to do with the modern political state of Israel in the Middle East. It's it's an entirely uh, mutually exclusive uh, concept. But the, the thing that's new to most of us is the idea that as long as the old age existed, the physical Israelites were still God's chosen people. 
and and the believers in Christ continued to follow the law of Moses all the way up until the end when the temple was destroyed. We found incontrovertible evidence of that uh, when Paul got to Jerusalem for the last time. So these people are part of physical Israel, but they are also tentatively part of the new spiritual Israel at the same time. But they are wanting to drop back from being part of the new spiritual Israel and drop back to being just part of the old physical Israel, and that is this falling away. And there's no way a Christian today can do the same thing that this writer is talking about. So, I th- yeah, that's a long-winded answer to your question. The I, I context like said that it, yeah, the con- it's out of context. That that uh, question is out of context of the passage. I, pr- I appreciate that. Okay, before I get further off base, then. Let's uh, go ahead and read verses 9 through 12, please. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Great, thank you. So our the writer is now, he's, he's given him kind of a harsh admonition there, but he's now writing some words of encouragement that he has a strong hope, at least he says he's convinced, that they're not like those who are placing their hope in old physical Israel, serving his holy people. Again, the holy people of God, that is Israel. Those are synonyms. The holy people of God are Israel, and Israel are the holy people of God. We are right at the end of a transition period where these people are transitioning from physical descendants of Jacob to spiritual descendants of Abraham. And and this thought closes with that idea. Don't grow sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and steadfastness inherit the promises. Now, what one character in the Bible would you think of someone who through faith and steadfastness inherited the promises? You all know the answer to this. <laughs> What one character in the Bible personifies this idea more than any other person in the Bible? I mean, he'd have, he has some good competition in his own family, but he is oh, considered... Abraham. Abraham, absolutely. He's considered the father of the faithful. And he is going to be the patriarch of the new spiritual Israel. He is what they look back to. And our writer's going to have you know more to say about that. He had total confidence to follow God, even though he could not see where God was sending him. He went anyway. He stayed steadfast. He didn't uh, keep asking for signs. How can I be sure, Lord? How can I be sure? He went, and he 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 acted upon 
his confidence in the directives of God. And so he is being held up here as the pattern that they should imitate, uh, not, again, these physical aspects of trying to reform the physical Judean remnant of Israel that existed still at that time for just a very short time to come. Now, you've got to be eager to fulfill this hope, which is this transformation. You know, this they've got to go through that transformation from physical to spiritual Israel, and they've got to stay on the edge for it right to the end. And the end here in this context cannot be something thousands of years in the future. The end was going to be something that these readers would be part of. They would reach it. They would witness it. I don't know if embrace is the right word or not, because it wasn't necessarily something pleasant to go through. Again, most of the first generation of believers lost their lives in in the affairs uh, that, that happened there between 67 and 70 A.D. But they had to be faithful to the end. And that's, a, that's those promises in Revelation in the letters to the seven churches that, again, are so often applied out of context to us today. It was written to a people who were right on the cusp of cataclysm. And the end was something that was happening in their lifetime. It was the end of the physical nation of Israel. So they just needed to hang on and be faithful. And he doesn't necessarily say it, but to the point of death, as Jesus does say it through John in the Revelation. The full realization of their hope would be the resurrection of Israel, where Israel could stand before God without condemnation. And and we'll talk more about that. The law of Moses brought only condemnation year after year after year. All right. If there's uh, no comments, let's read uh, verses 13 through 20, please. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, of course, you know, Abraham was the exact person that, that our writer uh, had in mind. And God made these promises, uh, you know, promising on his own name because there was nothing greater that he could, uh, that he could swear on. In Matthew 3 and, and Luke 3, you know, we find early on with the gospel going to the Judean people that 
God could raise up children of Abraham from stones if he wanted to, because they were they were so arrogant. They were basing their standing before Yahweh on their genealogical descent from Abraham, which accounted for nothing at all in God's sight as the new age dawned. In fact, the very act of creating children to Abraham is the essence of the idea of the new creation, which uh, hopefully most of us have heard that concept. Uh, We talked a lot about that as we looked at the Gospel of John. The writer of that account viewed the entire ministry of Christ on earth as a new creation. And he began the letter with imagery invoking the physical creation from the first chapters of Genesis. So the gospel is a new creation. The new spiritual Israel is a new creation. And the new children of Israel are a new creation who are children of Abraham by faith, not by biological descent. He picks up promises given, or he's quoting Genesis 22, Our Zionist friends like Genesis 12 better because they use that to justify stealing all that real estate and dispossessing families who've been there for hundreds if not thousands of years. But this is is not specifically about the land, but, but is about multiplying the descendants of Abraham, which our writer is suggesting is uh, being fulfilled uh, at that time as the new age is uh, dawning. Abraham also interacted with this shadowy character Melchizedek who our writer had told the readers that they were too immature to uh, learn about Melchizedek but then he basically says but you don't have any choice I'm going to tell you about him anyway which hopefully we'll talk about next time. (laughs) In addition to Abraham demonstrating total confidence in God uh, by leaving his home and journeying to a place he'd never seen before, of course we have the, the famous story of the sacrifice of Isaac where uh, Abraham was asked to uh, sacrifice Isaac and he didn't hesitate to do this and our writer will say a little later on that he as much as received Isaac back from the dead because he had already considered him as good as dead uh, because of the command of God to sacrifice him but having patiently endured he obtained the promise that's in chapter 11 the heirs of the promises made to uh, Abraham and the patriarchs are not the owners of all of those greenhouses and irrigated farms in the Jordan Valley that were stolen from the Palestinians. The heirs of the promise are, according to this writer, his readers who experienced in the gospel of Jesus Christ the true fulfillment of the oath that God 
swore to Abraham. The fact that it is impossible for God to lie and that he made these promises to Abraham with a strong oath, they're immutable. I mean, if, if God is who the Bible says he is, then, then our, our hope is confidently placed. The readers here are refugees from the sinking ship of the present-day world order, which was about to disappear. Their hope should have been fixed on the eternal order, the spiritual temple, the spiritual people of God, which was God's ultimate purpose uh, before the physical universe was even created, we're told. He now calls up uh, imagery of the old tabernacle, which had two parts, recall, the outer part and then the inner part, which was called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant rested. It was the throne room of Yahweh, the God of Israel, separated from the outer sanctuary by a heavy curtain. Jesus entered into the true inner uh, tabernacle of which the earthly tabernacle was a, a physical representation. He went there as our forerunner because in the new age, all believers have access to the Holy of Holies. In fact, the New Jerusalem is exactly the same proportion as the Holy of Holies was in the tabernacle and then later in Solomon's temple, a perfect cube. And so the New Jerusalem is the new representation of the Holy of Holies where God's throne is. But there is no outer tabernacle as there was in the old age. Christ has gone there first. And this is the idea of preparing a place for you. A lot of uh, uh, pop uh, gospel songs written in the 1930s, you know, written about, I want a mansion, a robe, and a crown. It's all about what God's going to do for me after I die. But that, though, that word mansion is really referring to the apartments in the temple where the priests could live. And we don't have to die and go to heaven to experience this place that God has prepared for us. It is, it is again, the spiritual temple. We are living stones. We are an integral part of this temple that is our place. We have the place now while we physically live, and we are guaranteed that place for eternity after our physical bodies fail. What our writer is saying is proclaiming an accomplished work of redemption and signifying that there is going to be even more good things to come as the new age uh, fully breaks in. So, I mean, why would these people even give a moment's thought to abandoning God's ultimate purpose, his new age of Messiah, to go back and to be part of the old age, which has maybe three years left at the most? I mean, it's a ludicrous choice when you look at it from an eternal perspective. 
or if you look at it from the perspective of Abraham, as our writer is going to continue to uh, demonstrate here to our readers. Just the fact that Jesus has entered into this Holy of Holies demonstrates that he is a high priest because only a high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. And again, we'll have more of, to say about that. Again, just, you know, if we look at this in context and instead of trying to apply this to our present day and age, uh, it, it's a lot easier to understand and it makes a lot more sense. And we don't foolishly bring in all these arguments and divisions into the Church of Jesus Christ, as uh, we discussed a little bit earlier. So in chapter 7, again, we will look in more detail at this person of Melchizedek uh, from the book of Genesis. Great. Thanks much, Mark. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.